This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 185, The Renaissance and Print. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. If it's important, write it down. The printed word has power unlike anything in human history, especially the printed word of God. For a thousand years, it had been unavailable to the common man. The Renaissance changed that forever. This week, we will discuss an inspired writer's obsession with what other people wrote, how comedy helped take down the papacy, the pros and cons of the Bible on your phone, and the clever little Rhinelander who started it all. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Most of the time when I have referred to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I quit, more or less, at verse 8, when Paul makes reference to the crown of righteousness that is laid up for him and for all those who have loved the appearing of Jesus. But of course, there's more to chapter 4 than that. He spends half the chapter summarizing his life in prison, talking about current news, common acquaintances, things of that nature. And also, he starts preparing for the winter. Although his prison sentence seems to be a death sentence, hence the idea about fighting the good fight and finishing the course and keeping the faith, etc. It does not seem to be an imminent sort of thing. So he asked Timothy to come and visit. And he mentions in verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Now there's a little bit of debate about what exactly that cloak is, but we'll come back to that maybe another time. I want to focus mainly on books and parchments. Books are somewhat different, of course, in a first century context than they would be today. We think of books as being what the experts would call codexes, pages tied together or glued together into a volume, maybe with a cover on it. A book in the Bible, of course, is a scroll, maybe composed of parchment. So it looks like we're looking at two different kinds of written material, some of it in scroll form and some not. Some have speculated that the parchments particularly may be copies of the Septuagint that Paul would like to use at his trial that's coming up. Well, that's certainly a possibility. Some have suggested it has reference to the originals or the autographs of his own letters. What everybody seems to assume, and I think reasonably so, is that this written material was spiritual in nature. And not just because romance novels weren't available in the first century. Because Paul was a man of God. And what else would he want to read other than the Bible? It kind of puts our own Bible reading habits in focus, doesn't it? I've always been fascinated that the Bible does not contain more admonitions to read the Bible. Whenever I'm trying to preach a sermon about you need to read your Bible, I'm really kind of strapped for a proof text regarding that. That bothered me for a long time. And then one day, embarrassingly late in my preaching career, I realized why this is probably the case. Probably, the Bible writers didn't tell people to read their Bibles more because the people didn't have Bibles. There are a handful of indications that people might have some access to God's Word, at least pieces. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 says that the king was supposed to write down his own personal copy of the book of the law when he became king. No indication whether that ever happened. But at least in principle, certain people had access to the law. Certain people had access to some prophecies, some historical records. 
But there's no indication, even in Old Testament times, that the entire book was assembled up to the point of the Septuagint translation. And certainly in the New Testament era, people didn't have access to 27 inspired books. And I find it interesting that when we finally stumble upon what appears to be a Bible reader, it's the man who wrote half the New Testament. You'd almost like to say if anyone would get a pass for not reading the Bible, it'd be the one who wrote the Bible. And yet here Paul is, in his final weeks and months, wanting to have better access to the written word. Why would someone who had access to all the truth, an apostle, want words in his hands? Well, I would suggest to you, first of all, why not? Surely his motivation for reading God's word is more or less the same motivation as ours. Maybe he wanted to build a defense, a better explanation of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe he was looking for daily guidance, for reminders about what it means to live a life in Christ, other people's perspectives, other people's experiences, or even just good old-fashioned pleasure reading. Is it so unusual, is it so unlikely that a child of God would want to read the Bible? Maybe instead of looking for a reason why he was reading it, we should embrace that he wanted to read it and then turn our eyes toward ourselves. You know, oftentimes, Christians will ask hypothetical questions about desert islands. If you only had one book to read, or if you only had five books to read, or whatever it happens to be, what book would you take with you? And most of the time when I hear Christians asking that question, they will insert, besides the Bible. Because we all know that the proper answer to that question is the Bible and whatever else. That's real easy in hypotheticals. The better question would be, if we're really that concerned about reading the Bible, what are we doing now? When we have greater access to the Bible than has ever been the case any time in history, can we be bothered to reach six feet in front of us to our coffee table and pick up everything that God has ever had to say to his people? What do you think Paul would have done if he'd had access to the Bible? I suspect he would have done anything in his power to put it in his hands and read it constantly. Surely we can hold ourselves to at least that high of a standard. This is what I've been reading. William Manchester makes no secret of his admiration for the life and work of Desiderius Erasmus almost certainly the greatest writer of the Renaissance time. By comparison, for instance, pieces of two pages are given to the man who invented the printing press. Don't worry, we'll get to him in a little bit. Other than Ferdinand Magellan, who we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, he spends more time talking about Erasmus than anyone else. I have my theories as to why. Erasmus is described as a humanist, Manchester's contempt for religion is not especially well disguised. In fact, Erasmus is best known for taking down the establishment. And when the establishment is the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy, well, that's going to make some friends in certain circles. I don't want to sound like I'm anti-Erasmus. Obviously, Erasmus did a lot of very interesting and profitable work, regardless of his motives. Erasmus apparently was a big fan of the satirical style that was popular among the Greeks and Romans. I'll make special reference here to 
the story that he wrote that is called Julius Excluded from Heaven. That's translated from the Latin, of course. Julius refers to Julius II, Pope of Rome. And there's no indication that Julius was especially worse than other popes of his day, but he was the one in power at the time. The story is basically one of Julius appearing before St. Peter at the gate of heaven, confused as to why he was not receiving admission as quickly and with as much pomp and circumstance as he had anticipated. Julius becomes a ridiculous figure, bragging about what he had accomplished. When asked what he had done for Christianity, Julius replies, I've done more for the church and Christ than any pope before me. I raised the revenue. I invented new offices and sold them. I set all the princes of Europe by the ears. I tore up treaties and kept great armies in the field. I covered Rome with palaces and left five millions in the treasury behind me. Peter clearly had much more of a problem with these kind of things than Julius did. In fact, eventually, Julius goes on to say, in answer to the question, is there no way of removing a wicked pope? Absurd. Who can remove the highest authority of all? He cannot be deposed for any crime whatsoever. Peter asks, not for murder? Julius replies, not for murder. In fact, he gives hypothetical popes, which is to say himself, a pass on crimes such as fornication, incest, simony, poisoning, patricide, and sacrilege. This is the way the papacy had become. And one of the best ways to burst the bubble was to poke fun. Satire, comedy, are very effective tools. Jesus even uses a few funny lines. How else would you take the idea of a person with a giant log in his eye trying to poke a speck out of his friend's eye? I think especially it's powerful because people in power, like Pope Julius, more than anything else, hate to be minimized, to be dismissed. If you do battle with them on the battlefield, that's what they want. That's what they're used to. Those kind of engagements favor the establishment. They have the power. They have the support. They have the infrastructure. They'll win those battles. But having some knucklehead like Erasmus sitting to the sideline, chuckling at him, poking fun, they really struggle with that. And maybe that's a good pointer for us. As we look at systems that are in place, we look at corruption, we look at evil that oftentimes dominates the landscape. We're reminded, keep our spirits up. Find some humor there, because it is there. For instance, in Philippians chapter 4, Verse 4, of course, we know that one pretty well. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, Paul says. But he goes on to say in verse 5, Let your gentle spirit or your meek spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This meekness or gentleness is the ability to deal with unfortunate circumstances, not by taking up arms, not by blowing up, being angry, being bitter, being violent, but rather saying, I'm strong enough to sit here and take this punishment. I'm strong enough to endure adversity. I'm the winner here. You're the loser. Very much like Jesus did in Pilate's courtroom on the cross itself. By maintaining our spirit, by maintaining our positive attitude, we may wind up having more success in combating the evils of the world and the people promoting the evils of the world than we'd expected. This is what I've been hearing. 
I'm going to say something here that may surprise some of you, may even disturb some of you, I don't know. I do not have a Bible program on my phone. Every once in a while, I'll go to BibleGateway.com or some such site to remind myself of what a particular verse is or see what it reads in an unfamiliar version, translation, but not normally. And if I do that, I'm much more likely to do it on my laptop. I don't have a program on my laptop either, by the way. I don't say that to cast aspersions on people who read the Bible differently than I do. If you want to get a Bible program for your phone or your computer, obviously there are advantages to doing that. But I want to spend six minutes or so here talking about the advantage of good old-fashioned paper and ink and put in a plug for reading the Bible the old-fashioned way, especially in the Assembly of the Saints. And I'm saying that from a preacher perspective. When we are reading from a book among the people of God, we set a better example than we would if we were reading off a phone. Again, I'm not saying that to disparage people who read off the phone. I'm saying from the perspective of someone who stands up in the front and looks out at dozens and dozens of people out there, some of whom are on their phone, I can tell you, some of them are not reading their Bible. You think preachers don't know these things. I'm telling you, preachers know these things. Some of them are playing Candy Crush. Some of them are checking their email or on Facebook or whatever it happens to be. I'm certainly not suggesting that all of them are. I know that some of them aren't, in fact. Many of my Christian brethren, including at Lakewoods Drive, read the Bible as far as I can tell almost exclusively on their devices, including in the Assembly of the Saints. And I'm fine with that. I'm saying, though, that when we actually pick up a book and read from it, it leaves no question in the minds of other people what we're up to. Makes it easier on an old preacher. So take that for what it's worth. But beyond that, there are real tangible advantages to holding a book. It's a good habit. It breeds familiarity. The more you handle your smartphone, the easier it is to work your smartphone. That just stands to reason. But it works the same way with books, especially if you have one book. One book that you read on a regular basis as your go-to study Bible. I've been using this one particular volume, New American Standard Bible, 1995 edition, for 20 years or so as the Bible that I go to most of the time, more than half the time when I'm reading the Bible, probably a lot more than half, I'm reading that particular volume. And it's gotten to the point where my familiarity with this particular text, this particular volume, helps me find things. I can find Matthew in about a quarter of a second. I can find Psalm 119. I can find Isaiah chapter 40. I can find the concordance. I just know my way around this book. That comes with familiarity. You don't get that on a tablet. You don't get that on a phone. It's a good memory aid. If I know from 1 John, somewhere in 1 John, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, I can't remember exactly where it happens to be. It's chapter 4, verse 4, by the way. But if I can't remember it in the moment, I know where it is on the page. It's right down there at the bottom, in the very last column, bleeding over into the next page. That helps me find my way around. Paper and ink is always better for notes. I realize that in some programs, you can take notes. You can write in your Bible, as it were. For me, I always prefer having something underlined. I have 
little notes jotted here and there that I'm going to be able to go back to 10, 15, 20 years from now, if I wrote it clearly enough, and remember what I thought on a particular day about this particular verse. And I don't want to minimize this either. I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but I don't want to sound like this is completely worthy of dismissal either. One of these days, when the dreaded apocalypse that we have been joking about for decades actually happens, when the master overlords decide we do not have a right to the internet because of our faith or whatever, I'll still be able to go to my library and pick up a book and read what it has to say. The more dependent we become on technology, the easier it is for these things that we love and cherish and need to be taken away from us. It's a reminder of what Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. As long as I can put my hands on the word of God, as long as I can read it with my own eyes, hold it in my own hands, I can have a connection to God that no one can take away from me. Is that the only way to read the Bible? No, absolutely not. But if you'll take one person's opinion on the matter, it's still the best. This is what I've been playing. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I, on a regular basis, will plop down 40 or $50 for a board game, so I will have something to talk about for six minutes on a podcast. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad, remember me? That would be insane. I would never, ever do that. Having said that, though, the subject did come up when we heard about a game called Gutenberg. Such an obvious fit for the podcast. That's just got to be something I'd be able to use. Still, we held back. We're going to investigate. We're going to see if this is a game that we can play multiple times, that we will enjoy. That's always the objective when we buy a game. And sure enough, it's a great game. And I'm not saying that just because I have this weird tendency to win the game either. It's very fun. And it doesn't hurt that the theme is centered around one of the most important achievements in human history. The invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg in 1448. It was Gutenberg's idea to create pieces of type, individual letters, rather than an entire story. These letters could be moved around, reused, put in different arrangements to create different documents. Because of the printing press, because of movable type, books were able to be published, including and particularly the Bible, of course. Before too long, there were printing presses all over Europe. The Bible was being printed and many, many other books as well. The game does a great job of capturing that, even to the point of creating little pieces of type that have letters in reverse on them. Now, if you've never seen a printing press, an old-fashioned printing press, or even seen a regular manual typewriter, you may be a little lost on this. But when a piece of paper comes in contact with a piece of type, a reverse image is formed. So you want the type to be backward, essentially. The type that we have in the game is backward letters. Not 26 of them, just five. A, E, I, O, and U. Multiple copies of all of the above. Obviously, Gutenberg had a lot more letters than that. But in the game, you were able to collect as much as you want of as many of these letters as you want. The type is half the battle. But you also have to have a way to make that visible. 
So the second element is the ink. So once you buy a piece of type in the game, it's yours for the rest of the game. You use the ink, the ink is gone. You have to go out and get more ink. So the game is basically all about putting yourself in position to make your customers happy, to produce the kind of documents that they're looking for in the color that they are looking for. Acquiring victory points and et cetera, et cetera. You know the drill. I'd like to play off this for a little bit here and talk about type and ink as a metaphor for the way that we approach God and approach our duties here on earth. We are people trying to accomplish things in his service. Like we are a printer trying to produce a document. The type is what Jesus supplies. It's a one and done kind of thing. He gives it to us or he doesn't. And thankfully he gives it to us. Things like grace, fellowship, guidance, assurance. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is given to us in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1 verse 3. He gives it to us and that's done. Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross again. I don't have to be baptized again. If I commit myself to the things of Jesus, I receive the things of Jesus. I once was dead and now I'm alive. To use the terminology of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5, by grace we have been saved. That type, if you will, those letters are mine. But there's another element, an element that I have to supply. Think of that as the ink. That is not a one and done kind of thing. That is something that I need to constantly supply and replenish and refine in my efforts to do better and better at this project that I've laid my hands to. This is essentially the point that Peter makes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5 and following. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like different colors of ink. I'm going to need them all. I'm going to need them all in abundance. And so I go back to the well time and time again, trying to replenish and refresh my resources so that I can become better and better at these things. The way he phrases it in verse 10 is significant. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make sure that you have that supply. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. He promises that we will continue to do good work in his service. He has already done the hard part. What we need to do, and we do need to do it, by the way. The printing press won't work without ink. What we need to do is show up every single day and give diligence to a pursuit of his things. If we will do that, if we will gratefully embrace the things that he offers to us and then diligently pursue the things that he asks of us, we will find ourselves where Paul urged Timothy to find himself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 14 and following. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That man of God, that person of God, that's you and me. With God's help, we can be fit for this work. Every good work, anything that God requires of us, anything we're called to do through the gospel, we will be equipped to handle it because we have the paper and we have the ink. In the literal sense, we have the Bible made out of paper and ink. And in the sense that I'm meaning it here, we have the tools that God has given to us to pursue, and we have the eternal heavenly assurances that are ours forever. With that combination, we will continue to do good work in his service and hopefully get better and better at doing it. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.